What's up, everybody? It's the Vanguard Podcast. I'm Zach. I'm Gavin. And today we were joined by the great Noam Chomsky. Honestly, it was a, a real thrill to be able to speak with uh, the man himself. Yeah, truly a pleasure. Truly one of the most surreal conversations uh, I've ever had. And I think um, the same goes for you, Zach. This is Absolutely. one we've long been you know, wanting to have, talking about. I never uh, in my life thought I was going to ever get to interview Noam Chomsky. And obviously, Gavin and I don't agree with everything that Noam Chomsky you know, says uh, uh, or even says in this interview. But it was, you know, with somebody with his pedigree is always such a tremendous treat to get to engage with and interview personally. It's something that I think I'll probably remember forever as, uh, as somebody who works in this space and just as somebody who's been so inspired and learned so much from his work. Yeah, I think it's can't be understated or overstated rather how influential Noam Chomsky's work and ideas have been, uh, even specifically within this lefty progressive media space. So um, it was just an honor and a pleasure to talk to him. And I hope you guys enjoy the conversation as much as we did. Yeah, without further ado, here's our chat with Noam Chomsky. Hello, Professor Chomsky. Welcome Uh, to the Vanguard. Um, There's a lot we want to cover here in a short time, so we'll get right to it. Uh, firstly, I wanted to say thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. I also wanted to pass along my sister Clara's regards. Um, she's pursuing a PhD in linguistics at Indiana University. She's a huge fan of your work, and I just wanted to uh, pass along her regards as she's very excited to watch this interview. Um, but I wanted to kick off with a question about activism because you have a new book out called Chomsky for Activists, and um, we've put the link in the description if people want to check that out. Um, and you've correctly assumed, Professor, that President Biden's environmental policy is a huge step up from Donald Trump's. Um, But you've also correctly assessed that it doesn't go far enough, um, given the impending existential and ecological disaster that is climate change. Uh, And because of our corrupt campaign finance system, which essentially allows fossil fuel companies to fund and influence our politicians and legislation, um, there's a lack of will from either the Democrat or Republican parties to end our industrial fossil fuel addiction. Um, Given the nature of the two-party system, which will likely just keep taking one step forward and one to two step backwards every time a Republican wins the White House. Uh, what's your message to environmental activists who feel that the approach of groups like the Sunrise Movement doesn't go nearly far enough? And do you have any comment on the green anarchist or the anarcho-primitivist uh, schools of thought, which suggest a complete rejection of and resistance to industrial corporate capitalism, uh, which would be necessary to save the environment in their perspective? Well, let's start with the last. Uh, Whatever you think of uh, green anarcho anti capitalism, it's irrelevant. I mean, any uh, we we can put aside the question whether this is a feasible or sensible move. Let's put that aside. Let's say, for the sake of argument, that it would be a good thing. It's irrelevant. The chance. Just take a look at time scales. The time scale relevant to dealing with the threatening environmental catastrophe is a couple of decades. There aren't going to be radical institutional changes in a couple of decades. Uh, This is true even for what, in my view, are more sensible approaches moving to significantly change the nature of uh, the state capitalist system. I think that could be feasible, I think it would be a good thing. It's not relevant to the climate crisis. The time scale involved in doing that is beyond the point where we would have passed 
irreversible tipping points and the game would essentially be over. So the fact of the matter is that the climate crisis must be addressed within the framework of existing institutions, modifying them, changing this and that, but there aren't going to be fundamental changes in time. That's just a fact about the world. Uh, I haven't mentioned what I think about this solution, but frankly, not much of it, not much, but it really doesn't matter. Uh, now, what should we be doing? There, uh, first of all, it's not quite true, as people say, that there's a two-party system. Uh, there's a centrist party, the Democrats, and there's a what's been called uh, a radical insurgency, which has lost any semblance of being a political party. Uh, you can see that it's pretty frank, in fact. When uh, Obama came into office, uh, Mitch McConnell, the most important figure in the Republican Party, uh, said straight out, our task when Obama is president is to make sure that he can do nothing. That's not a political party. That's something different. Uh, it's a, a loud voice for private power and private wealth and saying nothing else matters. If we have to wreck the country to achieve our power, so be it. When Biden came into office, same story. Uh, goal is block everything. We already have seen that. Take, say, the first stimulus, almost $2 trillion stimulus. Um, most of the, a large part of the major, large majority of the population supports it, including Republicans. Uh, most of the people in Congress think it's a good idea, including the Republicans. 100% vote against it. 100%, doesn't matter what you think. Party orders, it's we're kind of a caricature of the old Communist Party. Uh, orders come from the top, from the Central Committee. We obey slavishly. Our job is to serve private wealth and corporate power, period, and block anything that prevents our coming back into power. Okay, that's not a two-party system. It's, uh, it's been, the Republican Party's been moving in this direction since Reagan actually still had a semblance of a political party at the time. Changed with Newt Gingrich, changed again with uh, Mitch McConnell. So that's the situation we face. There's one functioning party. It's going to hit a wall of opposition no matter what it does until they can get themselves back into power and continue the wreckage of the Trump period, which will probably put us to an end. That's the situation. Now, what can be done with the Democratic Party? Here there's a split. Let's take climate. It's very interesting to see what's happening. Uh, Biden's program on climate is not good enough, but it's better, much better than anything that preceded. That's not because of a religious conversion. It's because of the activism of a wide range of people, most of them young, uh, dedicated activism, Sunrise Movement, which you mentioned, 
carried things very far forward when they occupied Nancy Pelosi's office, uh, got support from Ocasio-Cortez, uh, others who came in on the Sanders wave, uh, Ed Markey, senior Massachusetts senator who's been involved in interested environment. They succeeded in moving some notion of Green New Deal from the fringe where it was ridiculed, if even mentioned, to the center of the legislative agenda. It's a big step, not a, not a complete step, but a long one. You take a look at, uh, and it shows Biden climate policy. Now there's a battle going on. The party managers, the Clintonite, Wall Street oriented, centrist party managers whose conception of the party is a party of Wall Street and the affluent professionals and so on. Uh, they don't want this. They, uh, and they're holding back. You could see it right through the presidential campaign. If you looked at the Democratic Party website, as I was doing regularly, there was a switch on climate up to a certain point, say roughly late August, it was uh, Biden's program. And then it disappeared um, not on the inside, but you can guess party managers probably didn't want it. That's not Wall Street's the, uh, and that battle's going on. Now, one side doesn't stop. Those who own the place and run it, they are in a relentless class war. They never stop for a minute. The question is, will the activists continue? If they do, they can make a difference as they have already. Uh, you look at Biden's program, it, it does call for what is needed, namely uh, uh, ending fossil fuel use by mid-century, which means taking significant steps right now. Uh, however, the means by which it calls for doing this are the ones that benefit the fossil fuel companies, the banks, and so on, namely by hoping to create uh, means, new technological means to draw carbon dioxide out of the uh, atmosphere. Well, there's nothing wrong with working on that, but that's not what's needed. What's needed is ending the use of fossil fuels. Fossil fuel, like ExxonMobil now, is presenting itself as a green company. Trust us, we're going to do it for you. How are we going to do it for you? By maximizing the use of fossil fuels and may, and funding some uh, long-term project to get it out of the atmosphere after we've poisoned it. Okay, as I said, it's worth working on that, but that's not the issue. It has to stop using it. Uh, meanwhile, if you take a look at what's happening, with the oil prices going up, the fracking industries getting back into the game, and they're making use of the Trump destruction of regulations. So they're not uh, burning off uh, methane when it comes out, pouring it into the atmosphere, increasing, sharply increasing. That's a uh, death sentence. It's, uh, 
I mean, it's not as long term as carbon dioxide, but it's much more dangerous in the short term. And they know how to stop it, but it's just, you, you don't make enough profit that way. Okay, if that's what's going to drive policy, we're finished. It's uh, not necessary. There are feasible means to deal with it, but it's going to take a lot of hard work internal to the Democratic Party. Now, the Republicans aren't lost. If you look at younger Republicans, millennials, so-called, it's uh, they're sort of moving towards moderate sanity on this issue and they can be reached and other segments can be reached so it's not a lost cause and shouldn't give up on it but i think we should face the reality of the situation and we should put aside uh, ideas that are right or wrong out of range of the kind of thing that has to be done um to solve this problem essentially within the framework of existing institutions, which is not impossible. That doesn't mean you stop trying to change the institutions. It's parallel action. One of the things that it seems to me that is going to be absolutely necessary to solve the climate crisis is going to be uh, an effort, uh, an amount of global solidarity, uh, as this is a global crisis. Um, but one of the things that I've noticed uh, it recently is it seems as a concerted effort in the media to drum up a sort of a new Cold War, not just with Russia, but with China, two of the nations of which we're going to have to cooperate the most uh, in the future. And I, I wanted to kind of get your opinion on that and, and uh, see if you could maybe talk about why. And I'm also wondering to what extent, if any, if you think this is what's uh, been the cause of the surge in coverage that uh, China has been getting in America, very critical of their treatment of Uyghurs. Uh, it, there've been a lot of challenges on the left to, uh, I'm wondering, uh, maybe mitigate the, I'm not mitigate the suffering there, but uh, to uh, kind of draw back the hype and the, the fact that it's getting so much media attention as compared to the, a lot of the things that the U.S. is currently perpetuating. And I'm just wondering if you think that that's to drum up a conflict with a country like China in the future. Drumming up conflict with China and Russia is beyond lunacy. Uh, for one thing, we can't have a conflict with them. Um, if you look at the U.S. Uh, strategic, nuclear strategic posture, Jim Mattis's program 2018. If you read between the lines, it's essentially saying we have to be prepared for a, joint, a war against both China and Russia. It's total insanity. You can't have a war with China or Russia, let alone both of them. That's the end of the world. There's no such possibility. You can't have wars between major nuclear states. I mean, it's not even within the realm of possibility. It means destroying everything. So to be prepared for destroying everything is, there's no word for it. Lunacy doesn't capture it. So what's needed is exactly what you say, cooperation, lessening of tensions, and also asking some questions. Like there's as in the media, commentary, journals, there's almost unanimity about the threat of China. Well, there's a rule of thumb that's worth keeping in mind. When there's unanimity on some issue that's more complicated than two plus two equals four, uh, bull should go off in your brain saying something wrong. You can't have unanimity on complicated issues. 
So what's going on? What's the scam? And then ask yourself, what exactly is the threat of China? Try to figure it out. I mean, I've asked people in the mainstream. They can't say. I mean, there's a lot of bad things about China, a lot of bad things about many countries, including us. But are they a threat to us? Is that a reason for not moving towards cooperation where we have to? Global warming is one case where we have to. It's not the only one. Every one of the major problems we face is international. The pandemic, the next coming pandemic, which is very likely, they don't have any borders. Uh, nuclear weapons have no borders. Uh, heating government, of course, has no borders. These have to be dealt with internationally. And we're not doing it. In fact, uh, we're moving in the opposite direction, not just building up confrontations needlessly. It's not the way to proceed. Uh, but even in things that are really suicidal and known to be suicidal, um, if some extraterrestrial observer was watching what's going on here, they think we're totally out of our minds. I mean, take uh, vaccines. It's perfectly well understood by across the board that unless there is rapid vaccination of people in poor countries, Africa, Asia, poor people in the West, it's going to be a disaster for all of us. The virus will mutate, get the forms you can't deal with. You can't put a border on it. It's understood all across the board. So what are we doing? Hoarding vaccines and not using them with conscious knowledge that we're committing suicide. It's pretty hard to give a name to this. I mean, it's a capitalist ethic gone insane. We have to be greedy for ourselves, even if it kills us. And we know it's killing us, okay? I'll take, say, the United States, what we're concerned with. Happens to be a big excess of vaccines uh, for one reason, because the, the FDA hasn't given uh, authorization for AstraZeneca. Okay, so huge, massive vaccines. What are we doing with them? Well, Biden did take a step. He started giving some of them to other countries. Which countries? Canada which is the world champion on overstocking of vaccines. They have more vaccines than they could use in 50 years. So let's give them vaccines. Mexico, why Mexico? To bribe them to keep uh, refugees from the wreckage we created in Central America to keep them from reaching here. So let's bribe them by giving vaccines. This is in conscious awareness that unless the vaccines go to the poor areas of the world, not only will they suffer severely, but it'll be lethal for us. So yes, it's international. Everything that's going on is international. There are very few internationalist countries. Actually, one of them is not far from us. It's called Cuba, the only authentically internationalist country in the world. So what do we do about it? 
Well, it's interesting. First of all, we put it under brutal, harsh sanctions to make sure its life is as hard as possible, that it can do as little as possible. Brutal sanctions, entire world opposes them. Look at the United Nations General Assembly, this unanimous vote against it every year, but we've got to torture them and keep them from developing down to the level of small-scale sadism. If you take a look at what's happening, it tells you a lot about ourselves. So the uh, Department of Health and Human Services uh, just came out with its uh, report for 2020, that's Trump. Uh, you read down the details of the report, it's mind-boggling. They take pride in the fact that they convinced the government of Panama not to accept Cuban doctors. Panama's in the midst of a crisis. They don't have doctors. Cuba is the one country that's willing to provide doctors, true internationalism. So therefore, what we have to do is prevent them from doing it. Which is another one in there, which is equally mind-boggling. Brazil is a total disaster area. Now they don't. They have a Trump clone as president who's wrecked the place. They don't have vaccines. So what did the U.S. do under Trump? The U.S. embassy uh, pressured Brazil not to accept Russian vaccines which are the same as Western vaccines. But we can't allow what they call the malign presence of Russia uh, to be present in the hemisphere. So therefore, let's prevent them from keeping the vaccines. I mean, when things that like this are going on, and there's no comment on it, virtually, you have to wonder what kind of a culture this is, what, what's there's something deeply, profoundly sick, and it has to be overcome. It's not Absolutely. just the same in Europe. They're monopolizing vaccines too. When uh, the beginning of the COVID crisis, you recall a year ago, there was a, uh, one of the worst centers was Northern Italy. Well, Northern Italy happens to be very near, right on the border of two quite rich countries, Austria and Germany, which had the situation pretty much in control, under control. Did they send any help to Northern Italy? No, they're busy taking care of themselves. There's something called the European Union, didn't matter. Now, fortunately for Italy, they could turn to the superpower across the Atlantic, Cuba, which sent doctors nobody else. That's the world we're living in. Um, something else that I wanted to ask you about, Professor, and I don't know how much, if at all, you pay attention to the online leftist community, but one of the more fracturing and extremely divisive debates in recent memory occurred over this idea called force the vote, which sought to pressure progressive congresspeople into using their leverage to essentially threaten Speaker Pelosi's reelection, and as a result, potentially get some policy concessions or at very least a floor vote on Medicare for all. Um, if you paid attention at all to this debate, did you have an opinion on the strategy? And do you think that elected progressives, uh, Congress people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Ro Khanna, um, who believe in policies like Medicare for all and a Green New Deal, 
um, have a responsibility to be fighting to push um, President Joe Biden and his administration even harder um, by using their leverage in instances like this uh, or to hold up key bills in order to get policy concessions? Let's take a look at the real world, not a dream world, the world we live in. Suppose you push, suppose you manage to push Pelosi to say, let's have a vote on Medicare for all and in the Senate, push Schumer to have it. We know exactly what's going to happen. 50 Republicans will vote against it. A large number of Democrats will vote against it. Two, certainly, Manchin and Cinema, probably plenty of others. So what we're saying is, let's do something to be defeated. Is that a strategy? I mean, you know, it's nice to have, to say, I want this, but, but we're not children who say, I want this piece of candy. I'm going to ask for it even if I'm gone well, locked up in my room. If I could explain the logic just a little bit further, uh, I think the thinking was, you know, during this global pandemic, when all the other countries around the world have, have offered this, you know, essential human right to their citizens uh, in the taxpaying industrial countries, um, the idea might have forced a discussion, almost a conversation to be had around uh, our government's lack of insurance, our lack of um, you know, universal coverage, especially during this key moment. And while it may have ultimately died, um, some people thought that it was very essential to have that record um, of which senators and, and which Congress people voted against it. Um, that way we could proceed accordingly uh, in re-election, you know, primarying those, those elected officials so we know where they stand with the insurance lobby or with the people that need insurance in a global pandemic. That was the thinking. Yeah, that's fine. We can press Congress people to take a stand, but not by a tactic that says, let's try to lose. Uh, if you want to do it, what you go is do what Sunrise Movement did. Go after the Congress people, say, we want you to come out with a strong statement about wh what you think about Medicare for all, meaning what every other country has. Okay, that makes sense. And then you get them on record. Uh, they have to face their constituents. You begin to organize among their constituents, educate among them. But most of them, they may say we support it, but we don't know what that means. And when it comes to, uh, in fact, we do know what it means. It mean, what it means is, yeah, I'd like to have it, but it's pie in the sky. Uh, because uh, if I, if we get it in any form, we're going to lose our insurance policy. I won't be able to see my doctor. You get a ton of propaganda coming from the insurance, the financial institutions, and it kind of overwhelms the little bit of organizing that's done. There's plenty of experience with this. I mean, we're not living in a, I mean, take Massachusetts, where I lived most of my life, most liberal state in the country. Um, in fact, it initiated with under Romney, actually, some form of limited form of care. Uh, year after year, there was a referendum called in Massachusetts saying for universal health care. At the beginning, enormous support. Then the propaganda starts. Uh, television slots about the Harry and Louise or whatever it was. Uh, talking about how we're going to not be able to see 
doctor and they're taking our insurance away and on and on. It's going to, uh, in fact, you get exactly what you got with Sanders. As soon as he started talking about it, all the liberal media pounced on him. Uh, you had interviews with, with Sanders. They're interesting to look at. And a liberal reporter would say, how are you going to pay for it? What's it going to cost? And Sanders gave two answers. The first one was, yes, it's going to cost, you know, whatever, an amount of X amount of money. And then he gave another answer. And it's going to save you twice as much. Then go to the newspapers. One part gets reported, the first part, not the second part. Okay, that's what we're going to face in the liberal press, let alone the right wing. Now, the way to, there's a way to deal with it, but that's by intensive organizing on the ground to get people to understand what's hitting them, what you're seeing and why. Get people to understand that uh, when you think and when they're telling you that you have employer-based insurance and the employer is paying you know, $15,000, let people understand that that's a fraud. They're not paying it. They're taking it off your salary. Okay. People have to understand that. Uh, they have to understand the way the scam is working. Uh, you have to understand that, uh, yes, if you have universal health care, you're going to have more taxes and far less expenses. Okay. Uh, you have to, it's tax day to day. Here's some education that has to be done about taxes. Uh, one thing that has to be done is just fact. Uh, the United States has had a flat tax for decades. In fact, for the in recent years, with the changes in the tax law, it's not even flat anymore. It's regressive. Uh, and we, this, you know, the propaganda says we have a progressive income tax. Uh, First of all, it's not that progressive, but secondly, it's overwhelmed by the regressive taxes, uh, sales tax, uh, you know, social security tax, payroll tax, they're all deeply regressive. Put them all together, it's basically a flat tax. Now, in recent years, for the first time in a century, literally, uh, billionaires are paying a lower tax rate than working people. So it's a but, but there's something deeper about taxes that requires some education. Let's, let's just imagine two extremes, pure totalitarian society, functioning democratic society, and take a look at how people would look at taxes. In a totalitarian society, April 15th would be a day of mourning. Now, those gangsters up there are stealing our money from us. In a democratic society, it would be a day of celebration. We've gotten together, and we've decided on our priorities, we've decided on how to work them out. Today's the day when we do it. Let's dance around the maypole. Now, where are we in that spectrum? Well, that tells you something about functioning democracy. And that has to be shifted. People have to understand that working together with for the common good is a, is a desideratum. It's the kind of thing we want. 
It's not some guy up there stealing from us. Um, if it, to the extent that it is, we change it. Okay. Yes, it is to an extent. So let's change it, but not by saying, let's hand everything over to private power, which is unaccountable and let them do what they want. That's the worst way to do it. So all this requires on the ground education and organizing to withstand the avalanche of propaganda that's going to come if you propose, if you just say, let's have universal health care. You can anticipate it. It happens all the time. We know it'll be. Let's face reality. So, yes, it's a good idea, but you have to find the kinds of tactical uh, methods that will, in fact, achieve the goal, not just dig the problem in deeper. Um, Professor, I wanted to, one of the main challenges that you highlighted in that uh, response was the, the role that the media is going to play to obviously slander any kind of positive developments that the left is able to accomplish. And we've seen that time and time again. We've also seen the mainstream media will, as you've pointed out countless times, just completely malign or force out of the conversation anybody that they don't want to engage with. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts on the rise in the substack model of journalism with journalists like Matt Taibbi and Glenn Greenwald and other uh, abandoning the traditional newsroom model and instead opting for this backpack model where they are directly publishing to their readers. Uh, do you think that this ha will have an effective way of piercing media narratives? Or do you think that uh, something more crucial is lost by abandoning the newsroom model of um, checking, uh, fact checking and, and that sort of thing? Well, there's two questions to ask. One is what's being done with these opportunities. So you can have the Substack model, and you'll have, uh, uh, can't even think of his name, the guy on Fox News, you know, the big shot, have him take it over. You'll have uh, uh, the new version of Rush Limbaugh take it over. Okay, that can happen. The second point is, notice that these are commentary uh, options, not news gathering. Uh, the people who write there don't have uh, uh, bureaus in uh, uh, Karachi or in Germany. They're not collecting the news. Okay, they're not report. They're what they're doing is taking the news that comes in through the mainstream media and other sources, which you can look at. You can look at other journals and so on, and they're commenting on that just the way I do. I don't have a reporter and in uh, Africa, let's say. I mean, if I want to learn about what's happening in, say, French West Africa, there are ways to do it. You can go to the uh, left press, where they do have third world correspondents who are there to tell you what's going on in, say, Mali. In fact, there was a good article by Ramsey Barut about that recently. Oh, you can read the New York Times, as I do, and you get get a fair sense of much of what's going on in the world. But you're not creating the news yourself, okay? If I were to have something on Substack, or if I have given an interview in Truth Out, I'm not creating the news, I'm taking what's around there. So the sources of news remain basically the same, with all the filtering and the shaping and the options and so on. But you can compensate for it. Take Sanders again. As long as he was running, the media were 
almost 100% against him, uh, trying to destroy his seat. But he made it. It was an amazing success. Uh, take a look at his position right now. He's got one of the most powerful positions in the Senate, chair, chair of the Budget Committee. He's got powerful forces, popular forces behind him. Uh, people like Ocasio-Cortez were able to come into Congress uh, on the wave that was built very substantially by the Sanders movement. Uh, Sanders, the Sanders movement is a large part of the progressive international, the one, the newly formed international organization that's trying to bring together progressive forces around the world to do something. Well, that's how things happen. The media didn't like the anti-war movement in Vietnam. They had to fight it tooth and nail, but it finally made it. They didn't like the civil rights movement. And when it started moving to the North, they hated it. And Martin Luther King was pretty much destroyed, even by the liberal media, up to his assassination. But nevertheless, things break through. That's what activism is about. Change the basis by which things are happening. In fact, even take the New York Times. I mean, it has commentary today of the kind you couldn't have imagined five or 10 years ago. People like Jamel Bowie, for example, who was writing like that 10 years ago, 20 years ago. I mean, all, take uh, the 1619 Project in the New York Times. Would have been unimaginable a couple of years ago. Well, these are all the effects of changes that are taking place on that's how things happen. That's the point where you can move. Uh, you're not going to change to convert the institutions by convincing them. You're going to pressure them by things that are happening, just as like what happened with Biden's climate program. You know, that's where our strength is. Our strength is with people, not with powerful institutions. But just like you don't go to a... a you know, the office of uh, um, J.P. Morgan Chase and uh, talk to Jamie Dimon and say, hey, you know, you ought to do something about climate change. He knows everything you're going to tell him, uh, but he has other priorities, like making more money. So you're not, you're not going to convince him. You can change things on the ground so that J.P. Morgan Chase faces what they call reputational risks. Their term for saying the peasants are coming with the pitchforks, we better do something. And then they begin to do something. Not enough, but something. And then you keep at it. That's the way change takes place. And when you're thinking about, I mean, tactics aren't a sort of triviality that we put on the side while we think about big things. You want to get anything done, you have to think very seriously about the kinds of tactics that work. 